0: Welcome in to the forty-eight minutes podcast on Believe, presented by Bet Online. I'm Ross Geiger, joined alongside Bruce Bernstein of Pure Hoops Media and World B Michael Freer. This is episode number fifty-five, the Dikembe Mutombo episode. As Dikembe, with his iconic finger wag, remains the only Hall of Famer to have consistently worn number fifty-five during his career, which included eight All-Star Game selections and four Defensive Player of the Year awards. Tonight, we're thrilled to be joined by Marin Fader, who is a senior staff writer at The Ringer and author of the 2022 book, Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP. Marin, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here tonight. And uh, how are you, how have you been doing so far this summer? And since you are the master of words in my eyes, at least, give me a word you'd pick to describe this past month or so in the NBA with the Nuggets securing their first title, the Wemby draft, and of course, a free agency period for the ages.
1: God, the first word that came to mind was chaos. <laughs> I feel like every time I log on, there's something else that's happened or a report that just completely contradicts the last hour's report. And, you know, we've all just been like shuffling around and doing a lot at once. And um, it's very exciting. It's I, I prefer this than a, a boring offseason, but I don't think that's ever the case with the NBA.
0: I think we would agree with you there. We definitely love all the action, but it has been chaotic, uh, to say the least there. And uh, before we do move on here with the show, I do want people to know, for those that might not know Mirren, I'm fortunate to have known her from my own experience, uh, getting to know her through her book, Giannis, and how detailed she is on all her featured writing. She always goes above and beyond in the time she spends with her subjects and all the calls she makes uh, to those that her subject are, of course, close to. And, uh, you know, of course, it, it, you can do yourself a favor and read her work yourself. And it, it kind of speaks for itself if you're reading it. But just kind of want to preface that before we get any further into the show. I mean, she's highly detailed and we couldn't be more happy to talk with her today about some uh, subjects around the NBA. But before we do that. Just got to let you guys know, Bet Online is your number one source for all your betting needs. Get the latest odds, lines, and the latest matchup reports for baseball, boxing, golf, and more. BetOnline continues to be the fastest and easiest way to place your wagers, including live betting and your favorite casino and card games available to play right from your phone. Head to the website or use your mobile mobile device to sign up today and get in on all the action. Remember to use promo code BLEAVE. B L E A V for your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, where the game starts. And tonight, Marin, we are going to start with uh, our first quarter with two players that you've covered in great detail. And due to their recent off-season moves, um, let's start off by discussing Denver's Michael Porter Jr. Of course, Denver just found out that Bruce Brown was going to sign a massive uh, contract with the Indiana Pacers, which you know obviously triggers more expectations on Michael moving forward. You certainly detailed kind of his road uh, back from recovery, from the uh, injuries, and uh, kind of just wanted to hear more about what that experience was was like talking with Michael, talking with all the different uh, people that, that you interviewed for that. And, you know, it, I kind of forgot myself. Three back surgeries in five years. He's just 25 years old. Is there a crazier story out there in the league as far as just injury injury concerns and coming back and having success like he has
1: I definitely think that it's so unique and it to me I was so astounded not just at the number of surgeries which like you said is Insane. I mean, one of those is enough to sideline a person forever at that level with that type of athleticism and agility required. But to me, I had no idea about the brace that he has to wear just to play and the drop foot that he has. You know, wearing an AFO is not something you see in professional sports. Um, This is for older people. This is for people that have strokes. This is, you know, people that have uh, just trying to walk again. And Michael's trying to play the highest level of basketball and he's somebody that was you know dubbed the future of basketball so i think with him with this piece people loosely knew the shape of his journey they knew that he dealt with adversity but i really wanted to get underneath that and show what does it require to even just get on the floor right? Like it's, it's astounding the process, the amount of work. I think he said every part of my life is dedicated to just staying healthy. Um, So I I truly respect the resilience. And um, I think because of some of the comments that he's made in the past about COVID and stuff, people were, you know, wary to profile him, but I just found him to be so um, refreshingly honest and grateful about his experiences as devastating as they've been.
2: You know, he's obviously a huge contributor to the Nuggets, uh, to their title run. He's going to earn almost $150 million over the next four seasons. Um, and as you mentioned, he has had injury issues. And at, quite frankly, at times, it seems that he's given less than 100% effort on defense. Um, and I spoke to a former NBA general manager who said that? You know, a lot of teams were questioning his attitude. You know, coming out of uh, Missouri. So, is he somebody that you feel is just kind of gradually maturing, and his issues are going to soon be behind him, or do you con- could you see him maybe wearing out his welcome in Denver uh, at some point if if those issues don't kind of go away?
1: I think he's made tremendous strides on the defensive part for sure. That was a huge gaping hole in his game, and actually having the injuries caused him to rethink what his game needs to be, right? Like, if you can't just jump over people and dunk on them and, you know, play basketball like that, you're going to have to contribute in some other way. And so I do think going through this, you know he had to learn how to play defense, and that's something that you see with a lot of young stars, right? They they don't really do that until they are forced to in the NBA, um, and and I do think he's better. I think rebounding is better, um, hustle is better, um, and and for the attitude part that you mentioned, I think it's so humbling to have all of your tools essentially being limited or taken away. And I think it just gave him a, a humble sense of earning his keep and also not taking things for granted. And so showing up with a positive attitude, being a team first guy, I do think those things more than anything else he contributed on the court really helped Denver to their title. So I think that trajectory is going to continue. Um, and no, he's not happy with the way that he shot um, during those finals. So I think he will <laughs> the work ethic and all of these intangibles that we're talking about just further elevate him.
3: What do you think about – it sounds like Michael Porter Jr. is a good representation of the Nuggets in the sense that the Nuggets throughout the season really did not get the kind of respect you would think would garner a team that basically dominated the conference, the Western Conference all season. Then in the playoffs, you know, I bet you they if you pulled 100 people, they were not going to be picked to win it. Uh, out of the West by more than half, which is unusual. What do you think about the, the impression that even after they won the title, there were experts or analysts or whoever you want to talk to, you know, NBA people already criticizing the validity of their title run, trying to point out the teams that they face along the way and things like that. What was you, When you see that, because it's out there, it's, you know, when you see that, what goes through your mind when you're reading that or you're hearing that out there?
1: It's really the part of sports media that I really don't like. Um I think for many of us, like all of us in these rooms, we love basketball. This is our sport. We admire greatness and we try to, you know, really respect it. And I just feel like there's this attitude sometimes in sports media of just being mean-spirited, being negative and it's just not fair. Uh, I think the Nuggets, not only were they incredibly talented, but they were all really team first, selfless guys. And I just think it does a disservice to what they accomplished to just continue this narrative. And it's like, where do narratives start? Our industry starts them. They start them yep. and the next person listens to that and then they think that's the narrative and then they go on a podcast and they share said narrative. And before you know it, like that's the conversation. So that part really, really bothers me. I actually really enjoyed watching the series. I I really respected Denver. I was supposed to profile Aaron Gordon earlier in this year and like, that profile fizzled. But I felt like, look at his story alone. Like how interesting is his story? So I don't know. I feel like we're do- we're always looking for ways to discredit success instead of admiring and studying the game in a way that is, um, I don't know, that just takes the game seriously, takes the the basketball seriously. There, there's so much room for NBA discussion to be more oriented within like the actual game rather than the storylines around the game.
0: Now, in your your piece on Michael, of course, you did bring up uh, the draft slide and how he was a projected probably top three pick, if not number one in that year's draft class. I'm curious on what you would think about Cam Whitmore's draft slide. Of course, you cannot compare the two players. You can't compare the two medical concerns with either one of them. But just based on your experience and having the opportunity to get to know Michael and, and speak to all those that you did for this piece, I mean, if you were a general manager, do you think you'd take a a gamble on a guy like Michael, like a Cam Whitmore that is supposed to be a a top five player in their draft class? And they just keep sliding, sliding down the board based off what you kind of experienced and learned throughout that process writing that piece. I mean, what's your take on Cam Whitmore? And uh, is that something that that you would do if you were a general manager?
1: I mean, I was definitely surprised of course watching it like everyone else was, but yeah, it's a it's an interesting question because obviously the nuggets, do we want to say it was a um they knew or they had this hindsight because of course they didn't. So I would say if I was a GM, yeah, I would. I would, but it would be a calculated risk. It's mm-hmm. not just okay, I'm just going to take Cam because, you know, it it's more just like the the intangibles that Cam has those things matter and that's what you want on your team. And I think Denver did the same thing with Michael, even though yes, his game was more so predicated on the things that one would need from athleticism that one might lose when one has a crazy injury like that. But sometimes being a GM, as you know, Ross from all of our convos with Giannis is about taking a little bit of leap of faith. Um, I think sometimes and maybe this goes back to the sports media discussion, we have a tendency to frame these GMs as being very clairvoyant and, you know, I knew this and I knew that. And so I think like a lot of them don't, but they are the ones that make these really smart choices like a Cam or a Michael. It is a calculated risk and it's done with the right intentions and the right homework. And so, yeah, maybe I would have picked him too.
0: Yeah, and and shifting gears here as far as you know, GMs thinking they know things or having a good hunch on things, let's talk a little bit about Derek White. You had obviously uh, done a feature story on him and his transition from the San Antonio Spurs to being traded uh, to the Boston Celtics, and you had mentioned in that story how Brad Stevens had some familiarity with him uh, with his time with Team USA. Obviously, another crazy career for that. For that guy, I mean, he went from uh, having no college scholarship options to playing Division two and then getting Division one and and ending up on the Spurs. And uh, what I really took away from that was just Derek riding the wave. There was that that quote you throw in there about riding the wave and and that he had gotten from a friend. And he certainly had to do that yet again this year, uh, losing that familiarity that you mentioned in the piece with uh, both Emei Udoka's dismissal and Will Hardy taking over in Utah. So talk a little bit about what you saw from Derek this year. And were you that surprised? Because I feel like you pretty much nailed it in your piece as far as how this guy just kind of always adapts to the challenges that lie ahead.
1: Yeah, no, thank you for saying that. I It was so amazing to see him have his moment just because, i knew what he had gone through to get there i mean the one image that is hilarious to me from that piece is he told derek told me that like people used to call him the gerber baby because (laughs) (laughs) and um and it's like okay the gerber baby is now one of the most incredible players in this series the guy that nobody saw coming how can you not love that um but on a serious note The thing that I found so intriguing, I got to interview Greg Popovich for this story, obviously, because he played for San Antonio. And the way that um, Pop was so effusive with his praise, just so he said, Derek's IQ is off the charts. And he just told me how different the IQ is from the average player. And it really affirmed to me a lesson that I try to keep in mind when I do these profiles is that. A lot of times we overemphasize the physical attributes that make a player successful, but the guys that seem to stick, the guys that seem to have multi-year careers and contracts and show up in these big moments, it is more so because of these intangible qualities, the IQ. So while Derek does not you know, impress physically, I thought it was just so smart of, of Brad to see that IQ and to see that that could fit. It's really, really hard to be a mid-season trade guy because you have this very delicate task. You have to be amazing, but not too amazing because you're not the (laughs) And then you have to like enter the, the lineup and make everyone better and then hit the one shot that you have in your X minutes of time. I mean, it's very, very, very hard to do and you can't really be that even keeled unless you've had a journey like Derek's where you're always having to fit in where you get in. You're always trying to, you know, prove that you belong. So I just think the guys with those types of interesting backstories of being these unheralded players, they are perfect for elite teams in these situations because they're never going to overstep their boundary. But if you call on them, they will step up.
2: You know, Derek, really is sort of a classic product of the San Antonio's organization. You mentioned his high basketball IQ. I mean, when he showed up in the right place at the right time in game six against Miami, I mean, you know, you can't teach that. Mm -hmm. That's something that's either in you to kind of know what to do. Not necessarily that the ball's going to come right to you, but just knowing where you should be in that situation and just getting there. Mm -hmm. Um, He makes the simple plays. He's always heads up on the court. But now Boston has traded away another one of your uh you know interview subjects, Marcus Smart. And White's gonna be asked to do even more next season. Uh he's already one of the best shot blocking guards in the entire league. He's an all-defensive performer. So what do you feel his ceiling is? I mean, is this is is this guy, you know, championship caliber, you know, helping to lead a team to the championship? Is, is his ceiling all the way at the top?
1: I mean, I definitely think he is a critical piece for them to sort of win that elusive championship that they've been searching for. But I I honestly was very shocked with the Marcus um, trade. And I think he, he himself sounds like he was as well. Um, I definitely think Derek is a part of those plans, obviously, um, to fill up for that. I don't think he's the guy, but I think that he... He, if given more minutes and given a, a more prominent role, yes, I do think he's ready to step in and do that. I mean, people really forget his numbers in San Antonio. Like he was very much relied upon. He is capable of big minutes, and not just in these clutch situations, like we saw in Boston. Like he can be a regular quote the guy. Um, so I just see him continuing to grow, and and part of that is there is. Uh, I don't want to say like a tendency to relax because a player who has been in his position, right, Gerber baby, is never going to relax. relax. (laughs) You just because you make it does not mean you're going to relax. But I do think there is a sense of like, I've proven myself. The Boston faithful, they know what I can do. I have etched my name. You know, like so. I, I perhaps there's a bit of relief in that. In like, okay, you guys know I belong. I know I belong. Now I can just play.
2: I'm a long-time Celtics fan. I've been following the team, you know, as we said, for more than five decades. He is an ideal. He's He is totally accepted by Celtics Nation. Um, I can just say that play probably goes down in Celtics history as maybe the second or third most <laughs> clutch play in the history of the franchise. I mean, there's always going to be Havlicek stole the ball. There's always going to be Bird with the steal to DJ. And uh, and that one's, like, right there with, right. with those. So, I mean, the, he was accepted long before that, Marin. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. that cemented him in, like, a, a certain part of every Celtic fan's psyche that, like, oh, yes, we love him. He's perfect right. for us.
1: How can you not also like somebody with just the attitude that he brings, right? Even if he never did that shot alone. Like, he he's just an easy-to-root-for guy. He's a grinder. He, I mean, he's, like, Celtic through and through, like you said.
0: Now, as we talk about the Gerber baby, I, I don't <laughs> think this would be the last time we we use that reference. Now, so I hope you don't have that copyright. <laughs> in- <laughs> We are definitely going to be using that uh, from this day forward on the 48 Minutes podcast. That's pretty good stuff right there. But let's talk about some babies here with the second quarter, and we'll talk about some of your draft profiles. I know that you've spent some time with both Scoot Henderson and the Thompson Twins. Let's go ahead and start with Scoot. Um, I am a huge fan of Scoot Henderson, um, and, and I really am just curious, just knowing all the work you put into your stories, how much time did you spend with him? throughout that process? Because it seemed like you were there with Scoot for some time.
1: Yeah, I think I was there for almost a week. um, And I went to his house or his, so his sisters were there and they've, they've rented a place. And so I went to the place that um, they all live. And um, yeah, it was, it was really cool because it was before, I mean, obviously everyone was talking about Wemby and, you know, Scoot. Obviously, that name was there and people knew he also was generating buzz, but it wasn't to the level it is now. So I think I sort of got in when there was more time for access before things got really crazy. So I was I was really fortunate to go because you just kind of can't get a sense of what these guys are like until you're like up and close and personal.
0: Yeah. And so in the story, of course, you mentioned the family support quite a bit in there. Well, we heard from Mark Spears on last week's episode just how important uh, the family gym was for Scoot growing up. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned about that family dynamic? It seems like they all are just huge support systems for one another. And, of course, that's going to be huge for Scoot as he takes this big next leap to the NBA.
1: Yeah, in, um, in Scoot's family's home in Atlanta, there's these framed photos of quotes from all his grandparents. And it's from each of the grandparents, like a quote that they live by. And it's just so wonderful to see that in the home is that just right when you get there, there's like this immediate sense of rootedness of family, community, closeness. Um, to me, I think my favorite image about the family from that profile was they, um, the parents would bring their car um, and drive all the kids to this outdoor court. And they would just bring their fold-out chairs and sit there. And then when the lights, when it got too dark, they would, the parents would go in the car and just turn on the car. And so the lights would flash onto the court. And I just thought, yeah, I just thought it was such a beautiful moment. And it just shows like the dedication and It's not necessarily that the parents were like, oh, we're doing this because we want our kids to go to the NBA and they need to be the best. But it was just like, no, our kids really love this game. It makes them happy. It's a place where they can be together. We're going to support that. I mean, how many parents would stay out there for like five hours a night after a long (laughs) you know so I was so impressed by that and I can't understate enough the impact of his sisters I mean they beat him up in the post they were older they were bigger they were wiser I mean he just like did not stand a chance for the first couple (laughs) of his (laughs) of growing up and so I think it was just like losing and dealing with failure to his sisters like really motivated him
2: well, you would know about competing against boys on the basketball court now, <laughs> wouldn't you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So Damian Lillard said, I don't want to be a part of a rebuild. So basically when Portland drafted him, they were basically waving goodbye to Damian Lillard. They're you know, Damian didn't request the trade right away, but we knew that that was kind of next. But uh, Scoot's coach, Chauncey Billups, who's a friend of mine and uh, I used to work with him and. I can't imagine a better mentor for Scoot Henderson than Mr. Big Shot. What are your thoughts about where you see that relationship going?
1: Well, as somebody that grew up in LA and saw Chauncey destroy my childhood with the Lakers <laughs> <generation, laughs> in 04, I think it was, I definitely can attest to this firsthand. Um, I think it's tremendous. I mean, can you imagine just being able to ask Chauncey every day about the ins and outs of this and? Just from my profile of being around Scoot, he's so inquisitive. Um, Even, you know, the scene in the profile of of, um, Scoot reaching out to Dame, asking a very specific question about shooting the next shot. I can see him asking those types of questions to Chauncey every single day. And, you know, being in a position where he can, you know, pick his brain. And assistant coach Scott Brooks, who has dealt with a lot of elite NBA point guards in his coaching tenure. He's somebody that he'll be able to go to as well. So, I just think it's a really good spot. It's a really good spot for him to learn. And that's kind of what I like about him most is he doesn't look at himself like this finished product. Yes, he's confident. He knows what he can do, but he also knows that there's a long way for him to go. And I just, I think he has tremendous respect for those that came before him.
3: Spending so much uh, time around Overtime Elite, as you, I'm sure you had to do for your stories, it's, so, it's still an unknown product uh, through uh, most of NBA or NBA fans, I guess. I was, I was going to say, what's the biggest misconception? But I guess a better question would be, what, what do people need to know about Overtime Elite that maybe they don't know or should know as far as what, why it's important? Why, what makes it so uh, unique?
1: Yeah, I was really glad that I spent also a week there because I don't know about you guys, but I thought of Overtime Elite as this, like, really sketchy, like, what (laughs) is this league? I don't know. what is this Donda Academy? Like, I don't know what this is. Okay? Like, I just know that there's these twins. They're really good. They're in this league. What is the league? Um, But when you go you see it's not just a league with teams that play each other, right? Ostensibly that there's multiple teams and they all play each other and they practice separately, but it's this giant facility, um, in Atlanta and it looks like an NBA facility. Like you go in there, it's nicer than a lot of NBA practice facilities, in my opinion. And, they basically, they live nearby, they get to spend as many hours as they want there. And there's three levels. And it's also a school. So you, if you're a prospect that wants to not um, earn money and get your degree, you can also do that. And so I stayed in on some classes and it it's legit school. Like there's a teachers and homework and all these things. I mean, I was really surprised, to be honest, and and pleasantly surprised by that. Um, It's a legit place to do that. But I think the thing that people need to realize is that they're also teaching them about what it is to be a pro athlete. So sometimes potential NBA players, they don't really learn about the business side of the NBA or even the media side of the NBA, all these other things that go into being a professional until their rookie, you know, introduction. And this thing has like all these classes on, you know, money and, and uh, fame and all these things. And I, I found that the most fruitful is that they're kind of learning about this when they're 16 years old, 17 years old. Um, Is everyone that goes to overtime elite going to go to the NBA? Of course not. Very, very, very small percentage. But you can play overseas, play at the next level. And if you're like the Twins and you have this really strong work ethic, it is a viable path. I think what they did is they gave it legitimacy. So people, you know, even though people still might not know what it is, they at least are like, oh, that's where the Thompson Twins came from. That's legit.
0: Yeah. And this was a big deal this year because I believe they were the, uh, first players from overtime elite to ever be drafted, uh, in their inaugural year. I don't think they had someone that was actually drafted. Of course, there were guys that played on summer league teams and whatnot stuck in the G league, but, uh, to have two twins remarkably end up going back to back, uh, with Amin to Houston at four and Asar to Detroit at five, they got two top five guys. That's only going to help the momentum moving forward for overtime elite. Um, you know, with my experience, having worked in Phoenix on the Suns coaching staff with the Morris twins, uh, I, I saw firsthand how inseparable it, that bond can be for twins. And, you know, it seems very similar between Amin and Asar. How do you think this is going to be for them now that they are getting separated? I know I did see Asar was at uh, Amin's uh, introductory press conference in Houston. I mean, they're they're both each other's biggest fans. I mean, is this going to be a challenge? I feel like they haven't really been separated before.
1: Yeah. I mean, they tried to play it off to me like, yeah, we're going to be fine. I don't need him. Like, I'll text him. I'll FaceTime him when I want, but I don't need him. I'm good. I'm a grown man. But, oh, my God, it is going to be hard. It's going to be really, really hard. Um, I mean, my favorite anecdote was they told me they share headphones. I mean, they I can't <laughs> tell you how many times they've been offered a separate pair of headphones, and they're like, no, we're just going to keep this raggedy old thing. So, you know, that is an adjustment. That is really hard. I mean, I profiled um, Keegan Murray uh, last year and that was a big deal for him being away from Chris. I mean, there is a real thing that goes on when twins separate, but it is necessary. They know they have to do it. So I think they are saying it's going to be fine, but at the same time, that's a natural loss. You know, that that's going to be hard. Um, at, at the same time, they really are ready. Uh, there is a yes, there's such an innocence to the twins, right? The headphones, all these cute details from them of, you know, not having dress pants. I mean, honestly, it gave me honest vibes, Ross. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but there is also just a really stark maturity to them. I They're already they were talking about how they didn't really care what number they got drafted. They were thinking about their next contract. They weren't thinking about you know, what they're going to wear. They were thinking about who they're going to face in Summer League and they're already watching film. I just think they think beyond this moment. So I'm pretty sure that maturity is going to help them deal with that sort of really big life change.
2: In reading your piece on the Thompson twins, I was struck by how their parents seemed very similar to Scoot Henderson's parents. Did Mm -hmm. you come away from your interactions with any feelings about the roles of the parents in the success of these three guys?
1: yeah that's that's a great point. that's true i I mean, both of these sets of parents have embraced a totally unique path that has really never been done. I mean, people forget that scoot turned pro way earlier. he was the first, and that was not heard of. Nil legislation hadn't been passed yet. That was a really, really big deal for him to commit to the G league and the Thompson Twins not only did they commit to a league that didn't even have a gym, I mean, if you're a parent and your kids are like, we want to go to this new thing in a totally different state that doesn't even have a gym, what would your response be? So um, it's interesting, like both of these sets of parents, I think what unites them is a faith in the unknown, again, calculated risk. It wasn't just like, let's try anything, calculated risk. Um, The ability to do something different, not relying on traditional models. Um, You know, I think some parents are obviously really Uh, grounded in what's been proven right the path has been traditional you play high school you play aau you get recruited you go to college you go to the nba these parents are i guess are realizing that there are alternative routes out there and even if they're not proven yet they were at the forefront of change and i guess they had the boldness and the fearlessness to try something new um, which is really cool to think about i hadn't thought about it that way but yeah you're right they are very similar
0: And before we go into break here, I just got to get your pulse on this Marin. I'm going to throw a best bets out there, which I do from time to time here on the 48 minutes podcast. And just going to come out and say, I think Scoot Henderson is going to be the rookie of the year. Uh, I would definitely hop on that for anyone that is a uh, sports better, because I think the odds will go ahead and change once Dame is actually traded. But if anything, they're only going to get pieces to surround Scoot Henderson with. So Unlike Wemby, who might have some minutes restrictions, I mean, Scoot Handers, Scoot's going to have the keys there with Chauncey Billups on his side. Am I crazy to think he could win Rookie of the Year?
1: Slightly, um, but I okay. think <laughs> I think I think it is possible. I don't know what will happen with that. The one prediction I do have, and I don't like to do this because I'm not in that business. I have no. I I feel like we are not weather forecasters. I don't like doing <laughs> it, but. I think Asar is so much better than people realize, and they've been very biased towards Amen and saying he's the better twin. And I think people will be very pleasantly surprised to see how well Asar does.
0: Love to hear it. And uh, with that, we've gone ahead and reached our halftime buzzer. So we're going to take a quick break and come back with you for the second half. And we're back with the start of our third quarter. Now, Marin, I know that you had mentioned to me off the air, you have another big project on your hands currently ongoing, and you're working on your second book entitled Dream, a biography exploring the life, times, and legacy of Hakeem Olajuwon. Can you tell us what sparked your interest in Hakeem? Of all the different players you could have chosen, what was it about the dream?
1: I'm fascinated by him. Um, I think from the previous book on Giannis, there was so much in there about not just Giannis's story and his biography, but about the kind of world that he inhabits now and the political and other forces around him and this growing international um. You know, focus of the NBA. And it was really interesting to study where that is in real time. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought back to well, who was the person that started all of that? Who was the first international superstar? What was the NBA international scene like when Hakeem Olajuwon began? And Now, sort of looking back, I think I was really struck by how much Giannis looks up to Hakeem. I was struck by how similar they are, Um, humble spirit. Uh, I really always try to look for people to profile that are more interesting than just so-and-so is really good at basketball. I thought Hakeem's devotion to his religion, um, the style and elegance that he played with made him so different. You know, I, I like profiling people that are unique, and I just think he's massively underrated as a superstar. His story has not been given attention. Um, so I just thought, what if I could make this almost like the precursor to Giannis? What was the awesome. world that the helped create to give the Giannis's and the Embeds of the future this sort of thriving environment that they find themselves in now?
2: I've said for years the former player Giannis reminds me most of is Hakeem Olajuwon, both in the way he plays, the way he carries himself. Now I know Giannis was born in Greece, but his parents were from Nigeria. Hakeem is from Nigeria. They both even wear the same number, number 34. Can you compare and contrast the freak and the dream?
1: Yes. I mean, I love the comparison. It's so much, I mean, so everything you just said is really what drew me to it as well. Um, there is a sense of humility that was taught from um, their parents. And there was a sense of community, really strong sense of community, giving back, um, hard work, discipline, sacrifice. Those were values that both of, you know, Giannis and Hakeem were taught at home. Um, While it is different in the sense of Hakeem was extraordinarily private with his family life, Um, Giannis is too, but now you see his brothers as way more front facing than maybe when he first started for sure. When he before that first MVP, so I think that is slightly different. Although Giannis, of course, is an extraordinarily private person, too. I think he's just a little bit more out there in terms of his family and branding. Um, both of them are are such team first guys. There's a refreshing humility to both of them that is just astounding to me. Um, like one of uh, Hakeem's friends was like, you know, even nowadays, like he just still can't believe that all of this success came to him, that all of these good things came to him, and how he accomplished what he did. Like there's humble, and then there's Hakeem, and I think Giannis is the exact same way. Um, Giannis's thing about going, uh, going viral with the failure was so fascinating to me because I was working on the years where Hakeem didn't win. And without getting too much, obviously into the detail of the book, like there were some quotes that Hakeem said about how, and this was before he won his titles about how you cannot judge a person based on only championship wins. It's about, hard work. It's about giving everything. Not everybody can win. It just felt so eerie. I just felt like it could have been, it could have been the Giannis monologue we all just saw on Twitter. It was just so prophetic. And it, was, it really just was weird. And it, it totally reminded me of the synergy between the two of them.
0: Now, are you able to give us a sneak peek as far as like, if I were to ask you, who's the most surprising person you've spoken to outside of Hakeem? that like gave you some crazy insights on, on some stories or memories that they have? What was like a fascinating uh, source that, that you've spoken with so far? Cause I know you've probably talked to a hundreds.
1: Yeah, it's been a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, let me think. Um, because there's, there's the basketball sources and then there's like people from his mosque, which I found way more fascinating than the basketball legends. But I will say as far as like basketball people, like, Jerry West was fascinating to speak to because it goes back even before the 86 uh, series with um, the Lakers and the Rockets. And that was the year that the Rockets beat the Lakers to go to the finals against the Celtics, um, which you probably know all about, Bruce. And um, Jerry West was just fascinated because he showed up to a game in college at UCSB where Hakeem was playing and that was his first foray into Hakeem world and that was like 1982 or 83 or something like that and Jerry West is like sitting there and these people behind him have no idea who Hakeem is and Jerry West turns around he's like don't they know he's like one of the best players in the world Um, and I just thought of course, Jerry knew that, you know, like, of course. Um, and it, it's just so wonderful to, to hear a lifetime of anecdotes from, from somebody like Jerry.
2: During Hakim's career, he played many, many nights on an empty stomach due to the Muslim holy month of Ramadan that requires, uh, you know, observant Muslims to fast from dawn until sunset. His mental discipline must have been incredible for him to perform so well under those circumstances. What did you glean from him about how he handled all of that?
1: It was amazing. Um, You know, working on that section, it's so much about the paradigm shift between, like, what, say, we might think as, like, aren't you thirsty? Aren't you... You know, hungry, and for him, he felt the opposite. He felt better. He felt revitalized. He felt spiritually replenished. He felt um, that this was an exercise in in will and discipline, and um, he looks forward to it. So, I, I just thought that was fascinating um, to hear. Obviously, it is a completely strenuous thing, um, but his, the way he thought about it, of course, as you know, I am performing my duty as a Muslim. Like I am observing the will of God, what he wants me to do. So different than a lot of what the sports writers were asking at that time. It's fascinating.
0: Sounds like a really uh, awesome book. I can't wait to get my hands on it myself. When can we expect that on bookshelves? Do you have like a, 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 a date or a month or a season?
1: God willing, 2024. That's the okay. plan. Um, don't have the exact date in 2024, but it is 2024. So I'm so awesome. excited. It feels so weird. You know, like I spend so much time like speaking with you about Giannis and, Oh, it's just so bizarre to like be on a, a second project. So I'm really grateful.
0: That's awesome. We all the best to you on that. And we certainly uh, wish you the best of luck with the rest of the book there. Um, we'll go ahead and, uh, Go to our fourth quarter now, Marin, and we're going to have some fun with you playing a little game we like to call word association. So we're going to go ahead and give you a name, and then you're going to tell us the word that comes to mind and maybe some brief detail into why you chose that word. and okay. uh, We'll let World beast start.
3: Okay. Well, I guess uh, I'll start with Giannis.
1: Adorable? Is that wrong? <laughs> <laughs>
0: And do you have any other? Uh,
1: oh, sorry.
0: Wild-
1: I, yeah. I just, I just have these images of you and him picking up his first car, you know. And I think it's, it's, it just that doesn't leave my mind. And <laughs> I, I think it's incredible that even with his, you know, winning the championship, he's in the car with Mariah and he's clutching the the actual trophy, and he makes a joke like, you know. Um, what if it's gone or something? And I, and to me, it goes back to that central line in the book where his brothers told me, you know, they, they have this recurring thought. What if we went to sleep and it, and it all disappeared? So I just thought even at the height of his ascendancy, that doesn't leave you. And so, yes, while he's adorable and these, you know, these moments are just etched into my mind, he's such an interesting person, I think, for all the flack he got with the failure thing. I actually think it's really, really important to think about. And um, it's interesting how many athletes are motivated by that, like scarcity mindset, right? People who have gone through things like him to where even at your highest point, you are still, there's some part of you that's worried or it might go away.
0: Yep.
2: Okay. I'll go next. John Morant.
1: Hmm. Well, my first word was creative, Um, but it's, Man, it's been hard for me watching all of this because when I when I did the profile of him, he was in college. This was obviously before all the attention and fame. And he was just so, you know, we're used to as media. They're like, how can we give you as little time as possible with the athlete so you can do your job? Right. Job was like, do you have enough? do you need me for a couple more minutes? And it was so refreshing and it just showed where he was at that point in his life. You know, he was not used to a lot of people coming around and they let me watch the whole practice, which is also like absurd to happen. Um, And so I just look at him now and I, it's funny, like when, in one of my interviews, actually Jaw came up in one of my Hakim interviews, and this person was like, "What if Hakim was on that team? I don't think Jaw would do any of the stuff that he's doing. Can you imagine? Like Hakim would just—he would just tell you what was up and straighten you out. And this is not how you act, and this is not being a professional. And so, um, I wish that he had somebody like an elder statesman, kind of dignitary, like Hakim, on his team.
2: He does now. Marcus Smart. Marcus Smart will set him straight.
1: Marcus is the perfect person. That's such a good point. And you know, people forget Marcus's own career with the Celtics, which I outlined in that piece. Of that, there was a lot of questions around his own maturity. And remember when he like punched the glass, and you know, almost like I forgot what he did with his hand. But um, yeah, it took it took a minute for Marcus to find his footing. I think he has enormous compassion for young players in the league. As a result.
0: All right, Marin, I'll go next here. Greg Oden.
1: Oh, compassion. Um, I say that because I, a world of pain that man went through. Um, sitting with him, it was like hour after hour, it would release a new layer of, of hurt and shame that he went through. And the compassion that I have for him, it it really mirrors the compassion that he's learned to have for himself. And he was unable to do that for a decade plus years, feeling like a failure, feeling like he wasn't, you know, the person, the player that he needed to be. Um, Dealing with addiction. I mean, he has gone through hell and back. And I really, really hope he gets his shot coaching a college team, I think. The problem was is that people were scared off by, you know, his arrest and things like that. And, you know, the hope with that profile was to talk about those things head on. Um, And you can kind of see he's really, you know, rehabilitated himself. So I I hope he does get that chance.
3: Roll B. Yeah. uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar.
1: Oh, (laughs) God. Legend. Um, I... I I wish I could interview Kareem. Like I don't know if you guys have, if this is like a public thing or not. But you know he does he. The the person managing him doesn't really allow for many interviews, and it just sucks. Deborah, because, yes, <laughs> Deborah, and um, it just it just sucks because he he's such a he's such an interesting, fascinating person, and I wish he said more. I think Kareem is a fantastic writer. I think he's a great writer. It's not just a thinker. He's a great writer. And I feel like I, every time he says something, it's so good and it's so concise. And to the point, I'm just like, I want more from you, you know? Um, So for me, it's been really cool thinking about that 86 series with the Rockets and the Lakers, because you have Kareem, he was like on the tail end. And then you had a young Hakeem who was maybe, you know, I don't know, 23 or something. And it was, that series was kind of like the passing of the torch. And so it was so cool to like, you know, have Hakeem be like, wow, that's Kareem, you know, and then totally destroy him the next night. (laughs)
2: All right, I'll throw one more out there. I know we're getting close to our time. Nikola Jokic.
1: Oh, God. Uh, Why did the first word come to mind? Envy. I need that profile. Like, I need, (laughs) I need, 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 (laughs) need, need that profile. And um, I can't get it because he doesn't do it. He refuses. He just, he doesn't do that type of thing. Very, very rarely. Um, I am fascinated by him. Um, I think... I just think he's so he's his assists are insane. Like sometimes I'm watching it and I'm like, oh, my God, like, how did you even see that? You know, and it's interesting. I know I keep bringing it back to Hakeem. Forgive me. But because Hakeem was so, quote, different and that's what made him interesting. Right. He moved like a guard. He thought like a guard. He wasn't your typical big burly center of the 80s and 90s. Jokic is so interesting. We don't even fully appreciate what a unique specimen he is. I feel he is the same type of special and unique that Hakeem was to his era.
0: All right, and the last one I have, it's going to be throwing you for a a little loop, but obviously still relevant to you here, Bill Simmons.
1: That's my boss. <laughs> <laughs> That's my What's boss. it
0: like working with Bill? I've, I've always been a big fan. Obviously, he's known as the pod father on uh, a lot of the Ringer podcasts. So, just very curious what it's like to work with uh, such a talented individual.
1: Yeah, it's cool. I. Um, it's funny because like a lot of my friends listen religiously to the pod, like it's like a cult, and they when the new pod. You know, drops on a Sunday night or whatever. They text me as if I have some teleport to him, which I don't. Um, <laughs> I'm like I'm listening to like I'm listening to it like everyone else. Um, it's cool. I mean, I I think I the Ringer was such an interesting thing for me to come to because obviously it was more so known for podcasts um, than writing. But I think Bill saw what I think a lot of people don't, which is that. Um, things work when they're a combination of things, right? You Mm -hmm. can't just have writing. You can't just have podcasting. You can't just have video, right? The New York Times is successful because it has everything. Um, And I think in the sports world, um, I think Bill saw that. So I'm just extraordinarily grateful that there is still a website. And, you know, Grantland was like, my heart and soul. Like I read everything on Grantland and um, like getting, like I pitched to them when I was in college and getting rejected was so heartbreaking, but it was so cool to have the the guts to try. And um, all these years later to then be writing for the ringer is really cool.
0: Awesome stuff. And uh, we want to thank you again for joining us on tonight's show. Uh, It's been a joy having you on and having you share your, your thoughts, experiences and perspective on all things around the NBA. How can our listeners find your work and uh, how can they follow you on your social media platforms?
1: Yes. Well, if Twitter doesn't disappear in two <laughs> seconds, um, I am just at and Fader, M I R I um, N F A D E R. I joined Instagram finally after like a decade of resisting. And I only did this when that day on Twitter, when everybody was like, RIP, it's going to die. So I was like, God, I finally have to get an Instagram. Kill me. Um, so I'm on Instagram, same handle. And um, I spent so much time on my website. That would be the biggest thing if you guys want to read it, mirinfader.com. And um, look out for the book in 2024. um, Be so grateful if people read that. And, of course, you can find my honest book anywhere you buy books. So I appreciate you guys. This was so fun.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for being here. And with that, that will do it for this edition of the 48 Minutes Podcast on Believe, presented by Bet Online. Thanks for tuning in. And we'll be back with you next week to be sure you're up to date and 48 on all things around the association. Take care, everybody.